Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We are looking at the book of John today, starting in chapter one. Um, If you don't have a Bible, if you want to stick up your hand, I'm sure some of the welcome team would be able to give one out to you. Um, Also, if you have your booklets that were found on the chairs, it's page seven on them. So, John chapter one, beginning at verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that he had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was not made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human dissension, or of human will, but born of God. The word became flesh and became and made its dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I'm just going to pray for Steve as he comes up to us. Um, Dear God, I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for everyone that you've brought here today. Um, I pray that you'll give us ears to listen, and a heart to be open and to what Steve has to say to us. Um, I pray, Lord, that we will encounter you today, and make that decision for ourselves of what you mean for us in our life. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Is there anyone out there? It's a whopper of a question. In 2015, at the International Science Festival, in his address, Science Against God, Richard Dawkins said, faith is a great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. If any of you have followed Dawkins over the last 20, 30, 40 years, you'll know that that statement will not surprise you. In his best-selling book, which came out in 2006, uh, The God's Illusion, uh, Dawkins contends that a supernatural creator, God, almost certainly does not exist, and that belief in a personal God qualifies as a delusion, which which he defines as a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. He's sympathetic with the famous statement when one person suffers from a delusion, it's called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it's called religion. Clearly for Dawkins, it won't surprise you, there is no one out there. And he has his atheist followers. It's worth noting that the way belief in God is often Uh, portrayed in modern culture, and certainly by people like Dawkins, is that the burden of proof is on the believer to prove God exists. That belief in God today is so crazy, you need to prove it to me. But to say to someone, you must prove God to me, is to fail to see that in choosing not to believe in God, you're choosing to believe an alternative set of beliefs that also cannot be proven. 
Just as I cannot come up with a watertight argument that God does exist, so anyone out there cannot come up with a watertight argument that he doesn't exist. So today I want to consider why belief in God is not crazy and why it is very reasonable to believe there is someone out there. And I'm going to argue that if you don't believe in God, that things that we often assume to be self-evident are actually not very self-evident. To not believe there's someone out there, I'm going to argue, requires a greater level of faith. So, six reasons to believe, uh, six clues for God's existence. Firstly, the testimony of billions of believers. To not believe there's anyone out there is to put yourself drastically in the minority in world history and present-day thought. Over the last hundred years or so, different social scientists and philosophers assumed that as society progressed and became more rational and scientific, the levels of relief and religion in our world would decline. It was called the secularization theory. John Lennon's famous song, Imagine There's No Heaven, articulated that theory to the masses in 1966, and he said, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink, I needn't argue about it, I'm right and I'll be proved right. Well, he hasn't been proved right. Christianity has exploded in sub-Saharan Africa, China, and Latin America. And don't forget, places like China are becoming more rational, more scientific, and more believing, more modern, and more religious. And it's not just Christians. Belief in God makes sense to four out of five people in our world today, and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. After a major new study by the Pew Research Center, the Washington Post ran an article entitled, The World is Expected to Become More Religious, Not Less. Jack Goldston, who's a professor of public policy at George Manson University, is quoted. He says about the secularization theory. Sociologists jumped the gun when they said the growth of modernization will bring about the growth of secularization and unbelief. That is not what we're seeing, he said. People need religion. Now, the immediate question is, why? Why does belief in God grow amid such secular opposition? Some might say that, you know, while well, most of the world are just uneducated, or they can be even more blunt and say most of the world are just stupid. That's the tone of this book, if you've ever read it. That's Dawkins' approach, which is stupid, unenlightened. But we need a more thoughtful answer, don't we? And here it is. Studies show that what is in decline is inherited religions, the sort you're born into. Religion that wanes is one that is assigned to you at birth by your nationality or ethnicity. You're Indian, so you're a Hindu. You're Norwegian, so you're a Lutheran. You're Irish, so you're a Catholic. That type of religion is drastically in decline. What is not in decline in modern society is a religion that is chosen, not based on ethnicity and upbringing, but based on personal decision, which we just heard there from Nick as an example. So whilst in a country like Ireland, which is increasingly post-Catholic and secular, it can feel like belief in God can be increasingly untenable, that is not the case across the globe, where faith is chosen, not forced. University professor uh, um, uh, at London, Eric Kaufman, uh, in his book, he's a Canadian academic, he's a secularist, in his book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, speaks of a crisis in secularism and argues that the shrinkage of secularism and liberal religion is inevitable. And on the last page of his book, 
Shall the religious inherit the earth? He answers with an unequivocal yes. And in an interview with a new humanist, Kaufman was asked whether secularism might turn the tide and do a better job of winning people over. His answer, religion does provide that enchantment, that meaning and emotion. And in our current moment, we secularists lack that. So is there anyone out there? Well, to not believe there is anyone out there is to push yourself in the minority of all world history and present thought. So it might be just worth considering why do you disagree with the majority of humans ever? The second question, the second clue, is the motivation and the limits of science. I think it's fair to say that science is incomparably the most successful enterprise human beings have ever engaged upon. But who were the great scientists who led the way in discovery? And what drove their investigation? On the whole, they were Christian believers. Bacon and Galileo of the 16th century, Kepler, Pascal and Boyle of the 17th, Isaac Newton of the 18th. The names go on into the 19th and 20th, Faraday, Babbage, Mendel, Pasteur, Kelvin, Clark, Maxwell. For all these brilliant minds and brilliant scientists, there was no conflict between their Christian faith and their practice of science. Something that's incensed people like Dawkins. He can't face up to that fact about the history of science. But more than that, it was their Christian faith that drove on their science. C.S. Lewis put it succinctly when describing the trend of scientific development. Men became scientific because they expected a law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in what? A lawgiver. Johann Kepler captured it famously with that lovely little phrase, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. So the motivation of science was what? Belief that there was a rational being out there with a rational mind and he'd ordered this world in such a way, he'd put laws into this world that we as humans could discover those laws and harness them for society's good. Today, belief in science and belief in God or, or the practice of science and belief in God are often pitted against each other. But the original motivation for science, among some of the greatest minds of the last 500 years and present day, it was their faith in God that drove their scientific endeavour. So it's worth pausing. If so much of the scientific enterprise is motivated by belief that there was someone out there, I should at least pause before being unnecessarily browbeaten by some modern scientist like Dawkins who says that God is a delusion, he quote, quote, a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. Statements like that fly in the face of history and some of the most brilliant minds. So what about the limits of science? How does that help us consider whether there's someone out there? Many secular people will argue for what's called exclusive rationality. That is the belief that science is the only arbiter of what is real and factual. And we shouldn't believe anything unless we can prove it decisively using empirical evidence, observation. Everything else lies in the realm of unreliable human feeling and opinion. However, the view of reason, that view of reason now has insurmountable problems. For one thing, it cannot meet its own standard. If you're asking me to not believe something unless it can be proved empirically, what is the empirical proof for that proposition? 
The declaration that science is the only arbiter of truth is not a scientific finding, it is a what? Belief. Another problem is that very few of our convictions about truth can be proven scientifically. Whilst we may be able to demonstrably prove that for, to any rational person that substance X will boil at temperature Y at elevation Z, we cannot prove what we believe about justice and human rights and that people all have dignity and worth or what behaviour is right and wrong from science. If we use the same standard of science on other beliefs uh, that many secular people want to use to reject belief in God, we wouldn't be able to justify much at all. And that leads us to the limits of science. This point was made uh, repeatedly by a man called Sir Peter Medua. He won the Nobel Prize for acquired immunological tolerance. He discovered something wonderful there. He's a rationalist, he's a secularist, he doesn't believe in God, he's an Oxford professor. And in his speech, he said, science is incomparably the most successful enterprise human beings have ever engaged upon. But that there is a limit, uh, there is indeed a limit upon science is made very likely by the existence of questions that science cannot answer and no conceivable advance of science would empower it to answer. I have in, such my, in, in my mind such questions as, how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? A recent book that popularizes this uh, idea that science has its limitations is this fantastic bestseller called When Breath Becomes Air. It's a reflection of a young, brilliant neurosurgeon uh, scientist who is deceased because he died of cancer at the age of 37. And in his last year, he writes about his journey back to faith. It's moving and brilliant, uh, well worth a read. Paul uh, Kalanithi was an ironclad atheist, and his primary charge against Christianity was it failed on empirical grounds. Surely in enlightened reason, he writes, offered a more coherent cosmos, a material concept of reality, an ultimately scientific worldview. But the problem with the whole concept became evident to him. If everything has to have a scientific explanation and proof, then this, he says, is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning. A world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. All science can do, Kalanithi argues, is reduce phenomena into manageable units. It, it, it can make claims about matter and energy, but not much else. For example, science can explain love and meaning as chemical responses in your brain that helped your ancestors survive. But if we assert, which I think everyone does, that love, meaning, and morals do not merely feel real, but are so, science cannot support that claim. So we concluded scientific knowledge is inapplicable to the central aspects of human life, including hope, love, beauty, honor, suffering, excuse me, and virtue. That there are limits on science and what it can and cannot tell us is not to criticise it, it's to respect and honour its scopes and limit. The more you look into what science can and cannot prove is true and false, the more you realise that to not believe there is anyone out there is to leave yourself without a grounding for many of those self-evident truths, which is what Kalanithi found. Again, to quote, scientific knowledge is inapplicable in, 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 in to the central aspects of human life, hope, love, beauty, honour, suffering and virtue. Is there anyone out there? Well, if there isn't, 
You have to listen to the testimony of billions of people, past and present. And you have to understand and clarify the motivation for the original scientific investigation and the limits of its scope. But now let me move on the offensive to clues for God. Thirdly, the question of origin of the mysterious Big Bang. My son just started secondary school, and this week, in science, he got taught the theory, the Big Bang theory. One of the last philosophical exams I ever sat at Leeds University just a mere 19 years ago was a classic question, why is there something rather than nothing? Nothing can't produce it something. It must, something must come from something. It's the classic uh, uh, cosmological argument. In, in, in his book, A Brief History of Time, theoretical ph- uh, physicist Stephen Hawking wrote, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. However, he admits that there must be an explanation for the Big Bang. It is logically impossible to say he just came out of nowhere. And to be fair to Jacob's teacher this week, that's what... The teacher said to the class, the only answer that people like Peter Atkins, who's a fellow Oxford um, chemistry professor, I heard him once debate a man called William Lane Craig, and in his book, he admits that the beginning of the universe is a cosmic bootstrap, referring to the self-contradictory idea of a person lifting himself up by his own bootlace. If the universe had a beginning, which scientists say was about 15 billion years ago, It cannot just have created itself. Something or someone had to input the energy and the information to get the ball rolling. One answer could be, a philosophical answer, the idea of the infinite regress, that there was no first cause. The universe has just always been eternal, but scientists say, no, it wasn't eternal. It had to start. The other answer is to say, okay, well, then who caused God, Steve? I mean, if if he may be not the first cause, okay, fine. Maybe something did cause God, but now you're believing in something supernatural who caused God. So there is still someone out there or something. This leads us to the next clue, the fine-tuning argument or the cosmic welcome mat. The fine-tuning argument looks at 15 constants that are fundamental to the makeup of the universe and says that if any one of them was out by the smallest amount, then the universe that we have that supports life on Earth would not have been possible. Think of these constants like dials in a car, all of which must be perfectly set. The speed of light dial, the gravitational constant dial, the strength of the strong and the weak nuclear forces dial. They all have to be perfect for life to exist on Earth. For example, one of these dials, the electromagnetic force constant to the gravitational force constant, has to be accurate 1 to the part 10, in, uh, 1 to the, to the 10 to the 40 for the universe to support carbon based life. And any deviation would mean we wouldn't be around today. To get an idea of what one part in 10 to the 40 looks and feels like, imagine that the whole of the United States of America was covered in small coins that all reached to the moon, 236,000 miles away. And then do the same for a billion other continents the size of America. Paint one coin red and put it somewhere in the billions of piles, blindfold a friend and ask them to pick it out. The odds of finding that coin are 1 to 10 to the 40. As physicists and cosmologists look at these constants, they start to conclude it's very unlikely that a universe like ours came about by chance. The implications of this can be drawn out by an illustration. Imagine there's someone who's uh, a criminal and they are going before a firing squad 
Ten crack marksmen fire at the doomed prisoner who's ten feet away. Every one of them misses. Could that have happened by accident? Yes, it's possible that they were sneezed or coughed or were drunk that morning, and so all of them missed the mark of the person they were supposed to kill. But is it not more reasonable to conclude that there was a conspiracy and someone had designed it that they would all miss? Now, someone might try and argue, and this is the way it is often argued now, it is all fluke, it is all against the, God, uh, against the odds, and Dawkins in that book argues we are one of billions and billions of universes. And therefore, because uh, of all these billions of universes out there, we are the one that happened to be lucky enough to exist. This is known, again, I studied it in philosophy many years ago, the multiverse theory. Namely, that there are an infinite number of different universes, so it's inevitable that one of them turned out good for life on Earth. But, quite rightly, MIT professor Alan P. Lightman writes of a science crisis of faith. He says that the fine-tuning argument is so strong that scientists put forth the multiverse thesis, even though there is neither, neither a shred of evidence for it, nor any way to test it. You can believe there's someone out there, or you can believe in billions of universes that we've never discovered. So you have the clue of origins, you have the clue of fine-tuning, and now we have the clue of morality, an unyielding moral compass. If there is no one, no one out there, and we're just a decaying piece of matter in a decaying universe, and nothing more significant than that, how does it follow that we should live a life of love towards one another? It doesn't. Most people think that not only moral feelings exist, but moral obligation exists. In other words, regardless of how I feel, I have a moral duty. If there is no God, moral obligation appears to be illusion caused either by evolutionary biology or our culture. Russian philosopher Vladimir Solovskov sarcastically summarized the ethical reasoning of secular humanists like this. Man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. The second clause does not follow from the first. If it was natural for the strong to eat the weak in the past, why are people so opposed to it today? If that's how we all got here. If there is no God, how do you arrive at this idea of moral obligation? You might have moral feelings, but not obligation. But we know killing babies is wrong, even though they're really weak. How do you know that? Another variation is the, the question of human rights. Why believe that every human being has an equal right to life and liberty? One secular answer is that we legally create rights because we have come to see that society works better with human rights. So we've created rights uh, so that we know that this is the better way to exist. But that means human rights could be removed by what? A popular vote. But most of us believe that human rights are out there whether or not oppressive governments recognize them in law. We don't create them. We're all subject to this idea of human rights. Again, if someone answers that, 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 that this is somehow natural and inherent, well, again, it isn't quite fair to say that because if we all came about from the strong overcoming the weak, there's actually nothing natural about human rights. If there is nothing beyond the material world, if there's nothing out there, it's very hard to argue for moral obligation. Tim Keller 
in his fantastic book, Making Sense of God, an invitation to a skeptic, quotes atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel, who puts it like this. I remain convinced that pain is really hard and not just something we hate, and that pleasure is really good and not just something we like. I suspect the same is true for most people. On the Darwinian account, this must be regarded as an illusion, perhaps an illusion of objectivity that is itself the product of natural selection because of its contribution to to reproductive fitness. Keller concludes... Here we see the force of the moral argument. If you cannot accept that objective moral values and obligations are illusions, then you, like Nagel, would have to concede that there must be something beyond this physical material world that accounts for them, even if we cannot be sure what it is. So we come to the final clue. A man in history who claims to be God. Up until now, I've been arguing for the philosophical idea of God. Now I'm arguing for the Christian God. In the passage that's read from John's Gospel, John describes what was happening at the beginning of the universe, and he talks about the word. It's a Greek word that means logos. So it's a Greek word called logos that we translate word. And logos was the purpose or the meaning of the universe. It was a word that had currency in the first century uh, Greek philosophy world. What is the meaning of the whole world? What is the logos? What is, the, what is our reason for existence? And John says the word, this logos, was the meaning of life. It was there at the start. It was the first mover. He was the uncaused cause. He was God and he was with God and through him all things were made. Nothing was made without this Logos, this word, in him was life and light, and that life was given to all who would believe in him. And then verse 14 says, the word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This beginningless, creative word that is the logic and the meaning of the whole universe, the one from all eternity who was with God, who was God, through whom all things were made, this word was what happened? He made his dwelling among us. He was born in a place called Bethlehem. He spent most of his life in a place called Nazareth. He ended up going into Jerusalem to be killed. The word became flesh, and people saw him and heard him and said, I've never heard teaching like this. I've never seen a man whose character is so balanced and harmonious. I've never seen a king who would suffer and die for his people. And the great claim is, at the end of John's Gospel, he rose from the dead. And what did they say? We saw glory. We saw that thing that we thought our hearts were all about. So it was was smitten our hearts with such joy and wonder that we'd know we were complete and forever happy. We saw glory. He is the reason billions of people believe. He gave life to so many, including Nick. He is the reason science makes sense and is worth pursuing. He is the underlying what? Logic of the universe. And he put that logic in to the laws of our universe. He is the reason there is something rather than nothing. He is the mind that with just a word can create something out of nothing. He is the reason that the world is finely, delicately tuned. As one writer of the New Testament said, in him all things hold together. 
He is the reason we have a moral compass and human beings, and every human being has a human right objectively because we are all made in his image. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're not just accidents. It's not just survival of the fittest. We have all been wonderfully made in our mother's womb. And we have inalienable rights and dignity as image bearers of who? The word. He is a man in history who is out there who came here to show us what God was like and what it was to have a relationship with God. And so that it says there in verse 13, to all who believe he gave the rights, not just human, not just right, human rights, to become children of God, born not of a husband's decision, but born of God. C.S. Lewis famously gave this illustration. If there is a God who created the world and created us, I could no more meet him than Hamlet could meet Shakespeare. If Hamlet wants to prove there is a Shakespeare, so Hamlet's in the story, he wants to prove there's a Shakespeare, the author, he's not going to be able to do it in a lab, nor is he going to be able to climb to the top of the stage and find Shakespeare in the top of the stage. The only way Hamlet will know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the play. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He rode himself into the play and Hamlet met Shakespeare and you and I meet Christ and we see his glory. Can I provide a watertight argument for the existence of God? No, but I can give you clues and you need to weigh up the evidence and see which explanation of the world makes most sense and seems most plausible. As we've seen, the methods of scientific analysis are simply not calibrated to demonstrate whether a non-material, ultimate personality like God exists, even if he does. Just as a ruler cannot measure hope, and a, a, a thermometer cannot measure beauty, and a microscope cannot measure meaning, yet these things all exist. Can I provide a watertight argument for the existence of God? No but I can provide a watertight person. The word became flesh. He rode himself into the story. We saw his glory. He was full of grace for sinners and truth to tell us how life was supposed to be. Let's take a moment to pause and I'll invite the band back. And I want us just to take a moment to consider the word that became flesh and what it means to respond to him. Why don't you stand and I'll pray as we pause and then we will sing. If you're here today and you're not sure if there's a God in this world, thank you for coming. I hope today has stimulated your thinking. And if you are here today as someone who does believe in God and does believe in the Christian God, may the wonder of the word made flesh, grab your heart again this evening. Let's take a moment just to consider those two. For those of you that are not sure, just consider some of these things. And for those of you that are, may you be caught in wonder and love for what he's done for us. Father, we thank you for this chance to reflect and ponder and discuss this huge question. I thank you for any of my friends here today that have come because they've got that inquiring mind. They're not sure, but they're open to it. I thank you for their openness. And I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them and they would see that the Christian faith is both intellectually credible 
and existentially satisfying. And for those of us that are Jesus followers, Lord, may we never cease to marvel at who you are and what you've done for us. And that you, the infinite beginningless God who was there in the beginning, wrote yourself into the story and will forever be in human flesh. And when we meet you one day, you'll still have that limitation of being in one place at one time only because you took on flesh for us, for our salvation. May that grip our hearts now as we sing and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.